0: All right, how many of you guys have ever read the book Where the Red Fern Grows? Do you have to read this? Most of you? Your kids all had to read it like in fourth grade if you haven't. Quig, you've heard of it? You've never read it? I've read a third of it. Dude, you would love, well, you might hate the end of the book, but you would love parts of the book. Okay, so the red- Where the Red Fern Grows is about a boy who- and his hunting dogs. He- he- I don't know where he is. The- is it the Ozarks? Somewhere like in the holler. Do you guys know? Where I'm- you know where it is? Somewhere in like the in the middle of kind of nowhere, and he's a he lives to hunt raccoons. He loves these dogs. He works really long and works really hard to save nickels and dimes in his coffee can. He buys the dogs, and then he has to train them how to hunt raccoons. And apparently, um, the way you train dogs to hunt raccoons is you need a raccoon. You need you need a raccoon hide to drag around and teach them how to do it. Um, Does anybody remember this part of the book and how he how he catches his very first raccoon before he before his dogs are trained? Do you know this part? His grandfather tells him, what you want to do is you want to take a big old drill bit and you go find a tree down in the woods near the river and you drill a hole in this tree about the same width as a, as a raccoon's paw. And then you drive nails into the, into the, into the, um, into the log so they stick out into the, into the hole. And then you drop a shiny piece of tin in the hole. And what will happen is the raccoon will reach in because raccoons are two things. They're curious and they're greedy. And they'll reach in there, and when they ball up their hand in a fist to grab the, this little shiny piece of tin, their hand gets big. And where, where there's enough space for it to get in, it can't get out, and it's stuck. And you've got yourself a raccoon, which is completely ridiculous because all he has to do is this, and he's free. But he can't do it. He won't do it. He will not do it. Because there is something that he loves more than his own life, namely this shiny piece of tin. And it works. He goes down, his father goes down and clubs the raccoon to death, and then he's got his raccoon, right? And the story goes on. It's a fantastic story. There's so much, it's such a great tale of this boy and his love for his dogs. Does anybody remember the dogs' names? Do you remember this? It's not Old Yeller. What is it, Sir Rachel? And yes, it's old Dan and little Ann. Remember that, these guys? And uh, as, he, as he gets his dogs and he trains them, everything goes on and everything's great. But for our purposes, I really just want you to think about this, this raccoon. Okay? He's got some treasure that he's holding on to, and it's literally going to cost him his life. If he'd let it go, he'd be free, but he just won't do it. That phenomena present in both raccoons and human beings is exactly what Jesus is talking about. So what Sarah Rachel read. Here, here it is, again, Jesus talking about this. Think about this in light of these, these silly raccoons. Then Jesus said, said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We're in the midst of a series on the kingdom of God. Of heaven. Uh, and we've seen that we have a new king who brings a new kingdom. We've seen that, the, that the, the essential virtue in the kingdom is humility, that everything's inverted. And tonight we want to explore some of the things that can keep us out of the kingdom by our own choosing. In this particular snippet, Jesus identifies one of those big things, namely money. And money is a biggie, but it's not by any means the only thing that might keep us out of the kingdom. There's all sorts of things we preference to heaven. All sorts of shiny pieces of tin with relatively little transcendent value. But if we hold on to them tightly, they will cost us joy itself. They will keep us out of the kingdom, and we just can't let them go. I think about this phenomenon in my own life all the time, probably because I'm a junkie for joy. I want to be happy. It's the prevailing passion of my life. But one of the things that I've learned is I'm not always particularly wise about the things that are going to make me happy. And my guess is that you're not either. Many years ago, I read another book. This one was not about a boy and his dogs, but about the things that we preference to heaven. It's called The Great Divorce. Um, It has nothing to do with marriage. It's using the word divorce to reference the, the divorce or the distance or the separation that exists between heaven and hell. It is brimming with insight. Um, it's a short little book, probably 100 pages long, and it's well worth your time. The story is told from the perspective of a man who finds himself suddenly and unexpectedly in this gray, dreary town, and he's waiting in line for a bus. And this bus um, will take him to heaven. The town itself is populated by the souls of people that were denied entrance to heaven, but the bus will take them there anytime they want, and they can stay for as long as they want. They can stay forever. And in fact, when the, when the bus does arrive, kind of on the outskirts of heaven, every passenger is greeted by somebody, somebody that they knew in life, who has in themselves been on a deeper and deeper journey into the heart of heaven, but who has reversed their trip and come back to the very edge to greet them and to bid them to stay. But almost no one ever does. Everyone there that comes has something they want more Than joy itself, something they want more than membership in this kingdom. There's always some demand that they make, without which they refuse to be happy. I'm curious: has anybody read this book, *The Great Divorce*? You guys know this book. Um, Do you remember any of the characters? Any of you that are brave enough to say, like, what are what are some of the people that show up and the things they preference to staying in heaven? I'm curious if any of them like made more of an image in your mind. Do you remember them? Is it too hard? Yeah, go ahead, bro. Isn't there a Matthias? Or there is scholar, philosopher. Do you remember what, he, what it is that he wants and what he will not? What he longs for is questions and he's come to the land of answers and that's of no interest to him. He loves to pontificate. He loves to live in the uncertainty of the maybe and he's come to a place where his, his theoretical musings no longer have values. He's like, all right, I'm out. And, he, and he'd rather go back to a land that will... Be consumed in fire of hell, than, than, than stay in the land of joy. That's great. Anybody else? Remember anybody else from this book? She's a mother, is more about her where are you at, Lucas? Yeah, yes. And and in particular, she what she do you know what she wants? What she demands is the cost of staying. Son? Yeah, she has smothered him all of his life. She has manipulated and controlled. And her her the love of a mother has gone like way way overboard and ceased to even be love. And she refu- she says she will only come on the condition that. I think maybe his name is Michael. That might not be true, but if she if she will get her son and be able to control him, then she can. Then she'll stay. And of course, that's disallowed. It goes character by character, over and over again. All these people who have something that they love that they want more. Of. There's a boss, a man who gets there, and the person who greets him is an employee of his who had actually committed murder. And he's so indignant that a murderer gets in ahead of him that he's like, "I'm out. I don't want. I don't want. To, I don't want to play." There's one character I think in the whole book who actually stays. And his prevailing issue is lust. He's got this little, like, lizard salamander thing that's always whispering in his ear. It's, it's emblematic of lust. And um, he finally submits. And this angel, with his flaming hands, destroys the thing. And he's set free from it, and, it and, uh, and, and enters into joy. But I think the one that I remember the most vividly that made the biggest impression on me was this guy that he's, he's come to heaven in the hopes of bringing back some kind of goods um, so, he could start an economy back in this great town. everything in the great town is just shabby and low and kind of like you can almost imagine it into existence, but it 's this poor copy and He knows that the things in heaven are real and substantive, and so he decides he 's going to bring back a bushel of apples and and bring them back and sell them and turn a profit. But the problem is everything is not only real it 's like orders of magnitude more real, more dense, more heavy and he go, and he, and he, and he can 't pick it up here here 's this description of it of him trying to to get some apples to bring back. The author says, I could see him feverishly trying to fill his pockets with apples. Of course, it was useless. One could see how his ambitions were gradually forced down. He gave up on the idea of a pocketful. Two would have to do. He gave up the idea of two. He would take one, the largest. He gave up that hope. He was now looking for the smallest one. He was trying to find if there was one small enough to carry. The thing was, he succeeded. When I remembered what the leaf had felt... Like when I tried to lift it, I could hardly help admiring this unhappy creature when I saw him rise, staggering to his feet, actually holding the smallest of apples in his hands. He was lame from his hurts, and his weight bent him double, yet even so, inch by inch, still availing himself of every scrap of cover, he set out on his Via Dolorosa to the bus, carrying his torture. Fool, a voice said, put it down. You cannot take it back. There is not room enough for it in hell. Stay here and learn to eat such apples. The very leaves and the blades of grass will delight to teach you. And then he concludes, whether the ghost hurt or not, I don't know. But at any rate, after pausing for a few minutes, it braced itself anew for its agonies and continued with even greater caution till I lost sight of it. There's gotta be, uh, there's a ton of characters, 15, 20 characters in this book, these ghostly men and women who make the journey. And each one has something like a raccoon that they just refuse to let go of, right? Here's the protagonist, he discusses what he's observed to, with the man who's come to greet him. He says, what do they choose, these souls who go back? And how can they choose it? Milton was right, said my teacher. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And here's the, here it is, ready? There is always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. There is always something they prefer to joy, that is, to reality. You see it easily enough in a spoiled child that would sooner miss its play and its supper than say it was sorry and be friends. You call it the sulks, but in, life it has, in adult life, it has a hundred fine names, injured merit, self-respect, tragic greatness, proper pride. In another case, the sensualist begins by pursuing a real pleasure, though a small one. But the time comes on when, though the pleasure becomes less and less and the craving fiercer and fiercer, that though he knows that joy can never come that way, he still prefers joy, still prefers to joy the mere fondling of unappeasable lust. And he would not have it taken from him. He would fight to the death to keep it. He would like well to be able to scratch. But even when he can scratch no more, he'd rather itch than not. That is so brimming, so loaded with insight, okay? So back to our passage that Jesus is talking about. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom because they love their money more. They love their shiny piece of tin. Or perhaps I should say, we love our shiny piece of tin. I wonder, what is it for you? What do you prefer to joy itself? It might be literal money. It might be control. It might be respect. It might be beauty. In fact, there's a character in the book, a woman who uh, was beautiful in life, and all her life she used her physical beauty to get her way, and there's this this really interesting scene. He says this At first, I was quite at a loss to understand her behavior. She appeared to be contorting her all but invisible face and writhing her smoke like body in a quite meaningless fashion. At last, I came to the conclusion, incredible as it seemed, that she supposed herself still capable of attracting them, and she was trying to do so. She was a thing that had become incapable of conceiving conversation, save as a means to that end. If a corpse, already liquid with decay, had arisen from the coffin, smeared its gums with lipstick, and attempted a flirtation, the result could not have been more appalling. In the end, she muttered stupid creatures and turned back to the bus. You guys, what, what's your apple? What is the thing that you might insist on carrying? Whatever it is, put it down. Whatever happiness you think will come through the thing that you're preferencing is in fact blocking your access to the real happiness that you design. It cannot provide it, but it's yours in Christ. The real happiness that we long for is found in him. That's why Jesus asked the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? It's just so crazy. You keep the 10, but you lose your life. I know that even as I say, put it down, some of these things are really hard to put down. These are the things we love. So if you think about this, okay, when you think about the the difficulty, the genuine, uh, maybe even impossibility, of opening your hand. Just remember this. This might help. This might resource you. When Jesus was becoming king of his kingdom, his hand was not clenched in a fist. He held nothing in it. His hand was open and outstretched, and there was nothing in it unless, of course, you count the head of a Roman nail. He preferenced nothing to you his ardent desire, his one focus was to win you and to make you his own. And if that sinks in, that he was as open-handed as he was for you, that can resource you. That can flood in. That can fill your heart with the love and the worship and the delight to be so richly delighted in that you might find, I hope you would find, a new ability to begin to open your hand again. Getting into his kingdom is literally the most important thing in the entire world. Consider, literally, take time tonight. What might be the thing that you're holding on to so tightly that it might keep you from choosing him? Amen? Lord Jesus, you are the open-handed one, quite literally. I pray you might give us the grace to even notice sometimes think our fists are clenched and we don't even know it. What are we holding on to? Would you give us the grace to relax our grip, to release these things and find you instead? We love you.